Titus chapter 3, verse 1 to verse 15. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured, us, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once, and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way, to see that they lack nothing, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. This is the word of the Lord. God's providence is a curious thing. Um, just this morning I was struggling uh, for prayer. So I picked up Spurgeon. That's always a good thing to do when you're struggling in prayer. And uh, this prayer is uh, what I bumped into. I'm going to borrow it. It's very... Uh, relevant to the passage we are exploring this morning. So why don't you pray with me? Father, as always, as we meet with you, as we encounter you through your word and the power of your spirit, we want to be changed. We want to leave here in a state where every breath is for you. And may every minute be spent for you. Help us to live while we live. And while we are busy in the world as we must be, for we are called to it, may we sanctify the world for your service. May we be lumps of salt in the midst of society. May our spirit and temper as well as our conversation be heavenly. May there be an influence about us that will make the world better before we leave it. Lord, hear us in this thing. Amen. The passage uh, that Lynn read to us is one of those passages where we don't really have to beat around the bush. I can give you the punchline straight up because that's what Paul does. He has told us exactly why he's written this passage uh, in verse 8. So have a look there. This saying, that's verses 1 to 7, is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent 
and profitable for people. It's crystal clear. Paul has written verses 1 to 7 so that those who have believed in God, that's one group of people, those who have believed in God, in other words, the Christians in Crete, Christians in Midrand, may devote themselves to good works. Why? Because that would be excellent and profitable for people. People is another group of human beings contrasted with those who believe. So you've got those who believe on the one hand and you've got people. In other words, people are those outside the church, those who do not yet believe. People are those in wider society, in Crete and in Midrand. Paul wants the church, those who believe, to relate to society, people, in a particular way. That's why he's writing. Now before we get into all of that, let me ask you, how should we as a local church be relating to wider society? How should the church relate to society? Normally there are basically two opposing opinions on this. Let's call the first the spiritual gospel, and we'll call the second one the social gospel. The spiritual gospel says the entire job of the church is spiritual. So the church does spiritual things like singing hymns and baptizing babies. On this model, the church is a kind of a monastery, a retreat for holy people. If and when the church ever ventures outside its walls, it is to preach and teach the Bible, uh, to call people to repentance and faith. But then that's it, finished and clear. Anything else is dangerous. You risk being contaminated by the culture. And so you go back behind the walls and you wait for Jesus to come. The obvious criticism of this model is that it's too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good. At the other end of the spectrum is the social gospel. It's the good news that we are here to help in a material way. The church is supposed to love people and that means solving their practical problems. Loneliness. Addiction, guilt, poverty, injustice, singleness, marriage, the whole range of social ills. I don't think of marriage and singleness as social ills. I just want to make that clear. It's just the way that marrieds and singles tend to think about those things from time to time. But whatever the problem, we as the church will fix it. It's a one-stop shop. On this model, the church is an NGO. Again, the obvious criticism of this model is that it is too earthly-minded to be of any heavenly good. I mean, why not just leave it to the UN or to Oxfam? They're going to do a better job anyway. So it's church as monastery or church as NGO. And both of those models have serious and obvious problems. Thankfully, there is another way, the biblical way, and it's laid out for us in this passage. I don't know about you, but I have often struggled with this question. How exactly is the church supposed to relate to wider society? I've swung to both ends of the spectrum in my Christian life. Um, This, I'm so thankful that I've had to preach this passage because this is one of the clearest, most concise passages on the topic that I've come across. I'm hoping you're going to find it just as helpful. Not only does it give us the how, how does the church relate to wider society, it also gives us the why, 
It just lays bare that gospel logic for us. So we start with the how. How should the church relate to wider society? And there are three principles for us here. Three principles. The church is pro-government. The church is civic-minded. And the church comes in peace. The church is pro-government, civic-minded, and the church comes in peace. Chapter 3, verse 1. So read with me. Paul says to Titus, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient. The church is pro-government. And we don't just tolerate the government. We are actually for the government. We submit to it. We obey it. Now I know exactly what you're thinking. You are thinking about the 10,000 exceptions to this rule. But what about Zuma? What about Mugabe? What about apartheid? What about the Nazis? What about Trump? The list is endless. Can I encourage you, before you rush to the exceptions, just take a moment to think about this rule, to hear this rule, this biblical rule, this word from God. Before we list all the qualifications... Let's just take a moment to meditate on this truth. The church is pro-government. Jesus himself said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Now, why should, why should we be pro-government? Well, listen to Romans 13. You don't have to go there, but just listen. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Except, no. No exceptions. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Why? For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Government is from God. But what's it for? We read on. For government is God's servant for your good. Not only that, but government is an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Government is an agent of God for justice, for doing what is right and good, and for punishing what is wrong. Government promotes good in society, and government restrains evil. Now, you may not think so, and I have sympathy for that. I also live in this country. But try living in Somalia for a week, or in Syria, or in southern Sudan. Just listen to this description of life in Aleppo. It's the capital of Syria. It's basically a pile of rubble. Listen to this description from one of the city's few remaining residents. Electricity has become rare in recent months. It comes on one or two hours a day. We use candles. I don't let my children go to school. I've forbidden them from leaving the house. Many girls have disappeared in the city in the last few months, taken in cars or followed home or taken in front of the house. We've got a lot of foreign militants running the city's checkpoints. The police aren't in charge here. They are frightened of them. That's life in Aleppo. Life in Mogadishu is not too far off from what I gather. It's life without government. It's anarchy. It's Lord of the Flies. Did any of you do that novel as a set work at school? 
You remember William Golding's novel? It's about a group of boys. For those who didn't, haven't read it or heard of it, it's about a group of boys who are marooned on an island, shipwrecked on an island, and in the absence of any authority, they basically d- devolve into a tribe of murderous cannibals. The name of the novel is so interesting. Lord of the Flies. That's basically an English translation of the biblical name, Beelzebub. It's a name for the devil. What William Golding is saying to us is that life on the island, life in Aleppo, life in Mogadishu, gives us some insight into what happens in the absence of government. When the devil has his way with humanity, when it's just dog eats dog, survival of the fittest, when the only right is might, that's what happens. So if we stop to think about it, we can see that government is God's gift to a sinful human race to keep us from devouring each other. So let's not rush to wish it away, to call down curses on our government. Of course, now we arrive at the exception, of course there are times when Christians have to oppose their government out of obedience to God. No question about that. It's easy to make a biblical case for that. But in general, as a general rule, we are called to be pro-government. And not just pro-government in abstract in general, but our government. We are called to be pro-our government. And the question is, are we? Are you praying for our government? Are we actively looking to support them? Are we submitting to them wherever conscience allows? Are we thankful when they do a good job? Or are we just despising, criticizing, endlessly grumbling? We should be thanking God daily for our government because, my friends, it may not be perfect. The Lord knows that it isn't. We know that it isn't. But I can assure you, our history assures us, our recent history assures us, it can be a whole lot worse. Government is God's gift to us. And so we are called to be pro-government. Hard things to say, but it's in the text. The church is also called to be civic-minded. Titus 3 verse 1 says, Be ready for every good work. And 3 verse 8 says, that we are, be to, we are to be devoted to good works. So those are like the brackets in this passage. right? This, this is the big idea Paul is communicating. Be ready for every good work, be devoted to good works. And these good works are out in the public square, out in the marketplace. It's not serving tea after church. That is good and right and has its place. But this is Christians doing good out there in Crete, in Midrand. And this is not... Well, I suppose I should. It's not that sort of attitude to doing good. Uh, Doing good is not a chore. It's not an interruption. As if there's real life, which occasionally needs to be suspended for 67 minutes while we clear our conscience and then go back to real life. No, not for the Christian. This is a call to readiness and devotion. Remember those words. Be ready for good works, verse 1. Be devoted to good works, verse 8. 
We are supposed to be looking for opportunities to do good, anticipating them, seeking them out. Doing good is supposed to occupy our minds and our hearts. That's what devotion is. We're actually supposed to daydream about doing good. Do we? Do you remember Dr. Sikkim? That crazy Australian, he preached here a while ago. Any of you remember him? He insisted on taking a photograph of us with his iPad before he preached. It was some months ago now. Anyway, he's one of the most godly men I know. He's also a builder. Uh, He's built two or three houses with his own hands. And he put this thing to me in builder's terms. He said, when a Christian finds something bent or broken, he fixes it. And trust me, he wasn't spiritualizing the thing. He meant if you find something bent or broken, you fix it, whether it's material or spiritual. The whole gamut of human experience. When a Christian finds something bent or broken, she fixes it. Simple, isn't it? Starts with the smallest things. Pick up the litter. Return the lost property. Diffuse the argument. Mend the fence. Drive with courtesy. Join the neighborhood watch. Take the 2 a.m. to 3 a.m. shift. (laughs) The simplest acts of civic responsibility. And it starts there. We can't think these things are beneath us because if we cannot be trusted in what is small, we are not going to be trusted with greater things. It starts there, but it doesn't stop there. Because God has a heart for the marginalized. What is sometimes called the quartet of the marginalized. The widow, the orphan, the poor, and the foreigner. The widow, the orphan, the poor, and the foreigner. I don't need to tell you that in South Africa, in those categories, there is no shortage of people. In any one of those categories. The widow poor, the orphan, the foreigner. As South African Christians, we have it easy. We don't have to fly halfway across the world for an opportunity to serve the poor. You just walk out your front door, drive outside the gates of your complex. You're going to find them at the first robot you encounter. And we mustn't feel paralyzed by an endless sea of need. We are not called to save the world. You are not the Messiah. But you are called to do the good that's in front of you. To meet the needs of this one. That means picking up the piece of paper. Letting the taxi in. Asking the homeless man or woman his name. Her name. Start there. Who knows where the Lord will take it? The church is pro-government. The church is civic-minded. The church comes in peace. Titus uh, chapter 3 verse 2. Have a look there. Remind them to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. There are going to be times when we are going to have to take a stand against our society, our culture, because of some evil or another. 
we are always called to stand for what is right and good and true. But even as we take our stand on the truth, we must be sure to speak that truth in love. And as we engage with our culture, it must never, it can never, ever be from a place of self-righteousness or superiority. Never. If we call ourselves Christian. But why not? I mean, don't we have the moral high ground? Why can't we proclaim our message from the top of that hill? And this is where our passage is so very helpful. Because not only does it give us the how of the church relating to society, it gives us the why. It lays bare that gospel logic for us. And it shows us that those two things are perfectly integrated. How we relate to society and why we relate to society. So why is the church pro-government? Why is the church civic-minded, actively seeking, pursuing the good of the world out there? Why does the church come to wider society in peace? Why not take the moral high ground in some sort of us-versus-them confrontation? Why? Paul lays out the answer beautifully for us in verses 3 to 7. Let me just summarize it for you, but look there. Have your, have your nose in the text there. The reason the church wants the best for society and actively pursues it is because we ourselves were slaves. That's verse 3. We ourselves were slaves. But God saved us. That's verse 5. Now we are heirs of eternal life. That's verse 7. We ourselves were slaves, but God saved us so that now we are heirs of eternal life. And that's why we can pursue and must pursue the good of our society. Let me unpack it. First, let me just remind you of who you once were. Verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Do you remember those days? I do. But maybe you don't need to remember them. Maybe that's your current reality right now. If it is, please just keep listening. Many of us do remember them. And it leaves a bitter taste in our mouths because it wasn't happy and it wasn't pretty. All the makings of the Lord of the Flies are here in verse 3 in seed form. You take away the social restraint of government and you have all the ingredients for savagery. And that was us. Without God, we lived in foolish disobedience, just folly. And we were easily led further and further astray. We wanted to be led further astray. Like a pig with a ring through its snout. That was us. Instead of serving God, we served our own desires. I mean, what could be better? What could be higher than serving myself? Instead of being devoted to the good, we passed our days in malice and envy. Wishing other people evil, malice, and resenting their good. Envy. Instead of dreaming of how to do good, your mind was occupied by hatred, 
by how you could undermine or override your enemies. And you had enemies. You remember those days? Many of them. As John Webster said, sin is the chronic inflammation of the self. Puts it well, doesn't he? Sin is the chronic inflammation of the self. And we were slaves to our sin. To our own selfish desires. The rest of society was just an obstacle in the way of my desires. Or an instrument serving my desires. There was no real sense of community. There was only competition. Paul's point is this. As you think about Crete, remember... You were just like them. You were just like them. And you didn't change yourself. You didn't pull yourself up by your moral bootstraps. You didn't turn over a new leaf. You didn't turn a corner in life. In and of ourselves, we need to be so sure of this. In and of ourselves, you and I are no better than anyone else outside this room. I hope we are clear on that. I hope that is your heart's conviction. Because that is the gospel truth. Imagine you knew of a beggar. I'll try and paint this into a picture. You knew of a beggar who was uh, given a chance, a, a second chance in life, taken off the street, washed, clothed, rehabilitated, um, just given a whole new outlook. Outlook. And imagine uh, maybe one or two years later, you, you happen to bump into this person at Sandridge Mall, Sandridge Square, this thing over here. You bump into them there at, in the parking lot, and um, well, you see them from across the parking lot. They're approaching the vehicle, a vehicle with shopping bags, and you think, wow. And, but before you get a chance to go over and greet, this man is approached by a beggar. Imagine how you would feel if at that point he simply told him to sort himself out and slam the car door in his face. You see, that's us if we approach the world out there with any sense of self-righteousness or superiority. When we remember who we were, the motive for relating to the world can only be one of solidarity of humility, of empathy. We stand with them, next to them, alongside them, because we were them. We were slaves. But then, verse 5, God saved us. Slavery is not an opt-in, opt-out arrangement, okay, like some clause in your insurance policy. When you are a slave to your passions and pleasures... You are a slave. There are no options. You are a slave. You don't want options. There are none because you don't want them. You don't want anything else. Your desires are chained to your passions and pleasures. You are confined, constricted to that and that alone. And look again at verse 3. Do, have a look at verse 3. Do you, do you want anything to do with those people? Just read verse 3. Are they attractive to you? So we can be sure of this. God didn't save us because we wanted to be saved. And God didn't save us because we were the attractive ones. 
the ones worth saving. So why did he save us? If he didn't do it because we wanted it, and he didn't do it because we were attractive or worth saving, why did he do it? Four words in this passage give us the answer. Just see if you can spot them. I'm going to read from verse 4. Have a look. We're looking for God's motive in saving us. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Let's see if you got them. At least these four. You may have come up with others, but at least these four. God saves us because of his goodness, his loving kindness. It's one word. Verse 4. His mercy. Verse 5. His grace. Verse 7. His goodness. His loving kindness. His mercy. His grace. Loving kindness is his love for humanity. The Greek word is, you're going to recognize this, philanthropia. You hear that? Philanthropia. God is the original philanthropist. But this is not Warren Buffett looking for a worthy cause. Because God knows that when it comes to humanity, there is no worthy cause. There's only verse 3. And yet, he loves us anyway. So saving us is an act of mercy to the helpless. It's an act of grace to the guilty. And it's motivated purely by his own goodness. You see that this has everything to do with who God is and nothing to do with who we are. In case you missed it, verse 5 puts it plainly, it's got nothing to do with what we've done or how righteous we think we are compared to other people. Absolutely nothing to do with that. Verse 5 cannot be clearer. It is simply those four words, goodness, love, mercy, grace. Those four words are like four sides of a window into God's heart, into God's heart for humanity. That's why he saves us. His goodness, his love, his mercy, his grace. We sang about it this morning. And there is only, I'm sure you will agree with me, there is only one response. Gratitude. Gratitude should be the hallmark of the Christian existence. It should color everything we are, including our motives in relating to the world outside. Pride is the mark of the monastery or the NGO. Either you are proud of your holiness or you are proud of your good works, your love for others. Either way, you're proud. And so you are standoffish and aloof. And you are close to those who are not like you, not holy enough or not loving enough. But if you replace pride with gratitude to God our Savior, your attitude to society opens out. Whether others are like you or not, there's no proud, no pride. There's only gratitude to God our Savior, and that opens you out to others. A tight fist becomes an open hand of embrace. 
And the difference is God's goodness, His kindness, His love, His mercy, His grace. We were slaves, but God saved us, and now we are heirs. Now this is a little bit lost to us, so let me just flesh it out. There's a culture gap here, and we'll, we'll try and bridge that gap. What's happening in verses 4 to 7? I'm going to paraphrase. The father lovingly sent his son. The son appeared amongst the slaves, verse 4. The Holy Spirit washes, regenerates, renews those slaves, verse 5, so that by the grace of God, its father, son, Holy Spirit, we are no longer slaves. We are now heirs of eternal life, verse 7. Now we miss how radical a transformation that is because we don't understand the first century institution of slavery. But it's a radical change. It's a radical change that God brings about in our lives. It's not as though he simply speaks to us and tells us to change, right? As if he's switching on the heavenly intercom. Andach as a belief, andach. Can you cut it out? Okay. It's not like that. He is actually changing us from the inside out. He doesn't just speak to us from on high and say change. He changes us from the inside out. And he does it by taking our place. He heals humanity by entering into humanity and becoming human. That's who Jesus is. God as man. Now back to our culture gap. In an ancient household, a slave didn't own anything. In fact, the slave himself was property. The slave was owned. The heir of the household is at the other extreme of the social hierarchy because the heir stands to inherit everything, has access to all ownership and property. By the grace of God, we have been transformed from slaves to heirs. How does it happen? Jesus, the firstborn son, the heir of all of creation, all of the cosmos, left his inheritance and became our slave, our servant, so that we might become heirs of the cosmos. The heir became a slave so that the slaves can become heirs. The father sends, the son appears, and the spirit brings him to us so that we are no longer slaves but is. It is a radical transformation. It's so radical that verse 5 uses the word regeneration. Again, we, we don't have a Greek ear, but that's a creation word. That's a word they would use of God's making worlds. And what it's saying is that God actually starts all over again with us. He starts all over again with humanity in Christ. When the Holy, uni- Holy Spirit unites you to Jesus, He is making something completely new. He's not just saying, stop doing that. He is actually making you into a new creature. You were darkness. You are now light. You were dead. You are now alive. You were a slave. You are now an heir to the universe. It is radical change. You don't become a Christian by degrees of your own independent moral effort. So please, 
turn your back on that myth. That is a dangerous lie. You were a slave. And because of God in Christ, you are now an heir of the entire universe. Eternal life is yours. Life with God is yours. You stand to inherit everything. I don't know how often you've thought about that. Because we can rush past these words. But you stand to inherit everything. It's not a usual inheritance. Okay, We're not going to fight over the estate. There isn't going to be a squabble over who gets the roll-up desk and who gets the silverware. God cannot be divided. And there is no end to him. And there is no end to the blessing that he has in store for us. And that means we can share. Radical generosity is ours because we can't actually blow the inheritance. We can't. No matter how much you spend of yourself on others, and I'm not just talking about materially, I'm talking about your entire existence. No matter how much you give it over to others, God has more to give you. The world looks at us and thinks shame. These poor Christians. They are so needy, so weak, so desperately in need of a crutch. My friends, we are sons and daughters of God Almighty. We stand to inherit the whole universe. So when we engage with society, it's not a tug of war. We win, they lose, or they win and we lose. We have nothing to lose. And actually, we've got nothing to gain. Everything is already ours in Christ. And that means we are free to love. We become philanthropists, lovers of humanity in the deepest possible sense of those words. Let's try and pull it all together. The church is called to be pro-government. The church is active for the public good. The church is peaceful in its approach. Why? Because of our solidarity with those who are still slaves. Because of our gratitude to God. Our gratitude that has opened what pride and self-righteousness had closed down. And because as co-heirs with Christ, we are free to love mankind. We have nothing to lose. We have nothing to gain. We can love them. In other words, by the washing, regeneration, and renewal of the Holy Spirit, God's heart for mankind becomes ours. There's just one last piece of the puzzle that I have to share with you. We find it back where we started in verse 8. So go back to verse 8 and let's read it. We'll read it one more time carefully. This saying is trustworthy. That's verses 1 to 7. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God, that's many of us here this morning, may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Why? These things are excellent and profitable for people. That's Midrand. Why should the church be devoted to good works? Because it will be profitable. It'll be good for the people themselves. It'll be good for those living around us. And we're free to love them. But it will also be excellent. And the English word doesn't carry 
the same connotations. This has connotations of putting beauty on display. There is one beauty Paul has in mind. Ultimate beauty. The beauty of God himself. God's glory. When we do good to people, it's an expression of God's heart for them. And it will show them just how beautiful he is. And for those given eyes to see, that beauty will be irresistible. They will not be able to resist his love, just as we have not been able to resist his love. The church is not a monastery that only does its good works behind closed walls. The church is not an NGO trying to save the world with blankets or textbooks or a toll-free crisis line. The church is a fellowship of former slaves who does good out of solidarity with those who are still slaves, out of gratitude to God and out of the deepest possible love for mankind as those who were loved first by God. We engage with society for the good of the people and for the glory of God. And the two are one. The church's business is not the gospel and then after that to do some good. Because the church's business is the gospel, we will do good. Remembering, always remembering, that the only good we can ever do is in Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we were slaves. You saved us. And now we are heirs of eternal life. We praise you for the Lord Jesus, who became a slave so that we might become heirs. Help us, Holy Spirit, to have the heart of the Father and to do good out of solidarity, gratitude, and love. Help us to do it all for the good of the people and for your glory, knowing that the two are one. Amen.